Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and you're welcome to the Irish Examiner Current Affair podcast with me, Mick Clifford. Every week we hope to bring you a slice of the news that you might find engaging and informative. We'll be looking at the big stories of the week, but also delving into many off-agenda stories that we've featured in the Irish Examiner and our unique interpretation of them. Now, today I'm joined by Brian Killoran, Chief Executive of the Immigrant Council of Ireland. Immigration, I think, its general consensus is going to be one of the two issues, along with climate change, of the 21st century. And I think we will see pretty soon that those two issues will be linked in some ways. But to turn to immigration on our little island here, Brian, I suppose the most topical thing in this regard, and there are a number of topical issues that have arisen in recent weeks, is the discovery of 16 men, including two minors, who were en route to Rosslare from Cherbourg. Um, I suppose the first thing to note is, thankfully, unlike in other instances, a major tragedy has been averted here by the discovery of these men inside the container. Absolutely. It's um, it's something that is happening, obviously, with regular occurrence. And in many instances we've seen in the last while, often fatal. You know, that, that recent case in the UK where 39 people were found in a refrigerated unit is a horrific example of the type of risks that people will try and take to enter a country for some opportunity for, you know, a, a safer future for themselves, or for their children, for their families. Um, some opportunity to kind of, I suppose put behind them the turmoil that they're coming from you know in this instance with Ross Lair it looks like the majority as you say 16 16 people including two minors the majority seem to be Iraqi Kurds coming from you know northern northern Iraq and obviously that whole area is a massively unstable unstable area not even most recently with the kind of incursions into northern Syria by by Turkish forces displacing tens of thousands of people again so it's far from an area that's sorted out or far from from an area that's peaceful and that is driving people to all kinds of extremes to try and get somewhere that's actually safe, you know? I, I suppose it's also, we'd have to acknowledge that some people in, involved in who, who are people smuggled effectively or who are desperate to come to the likes of the UK or even here, they're fleeing poverty as much as any kind of oppression. And it's also indicative of what they see as, as, as the prospects of a new life, that they'll take those kind of risks. 
Well, that's the thing. When it comes to asylum and protection, asylum and protection tends to look really at political persecution, religious persecution. You know, are you uh, part of an LGBT minority? Are you, is your gender an issue? So it looks at those things first and they're the main things. And war, that, of course. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Conflict, human rights abuses, things like conscription, like in Eritrea where you're conscripted at 18 and you're never let out of the army until you die effectively. Um, so all those kind of things are the primary things that are, that are drivers of international protection. But there's other things coming along the line that are really important like so when we look at things like global economic inequality and the fact that say for example in Africa and sub-Saharan Africa the youth population in Africa is going to grow a huge amount over the next 50 years you know those under 25 and they have very little opportunities in Africa and that's mainly economic and a lot of it's due to corruption a lot of it's due to endemic poverty and conflict as well but even things like climate change that's the big unspoken thing in, in protection at the moment and it's almost taboo to suggest that climate change should be grounds for things like international protection but it's all already displacing people uh, across the world, you know. And these are things that are in the... I've I've experienced that myself. I was on the trip Mm. to Ethiopia, I think it was about two, three years ago. Mm. And we were brought there into areas up near Eritrea, actually, that people can no longer get a living off the land. And that is specifically down to climate change. And that's the beginnings, I think, of what you're going to see, particularly in the developing world, an increasing situation whereby people just have to flee where they're from because they can't earn a living on the basis of, of, of the climate. Absolutely. It's been happening in the last, it's been happening over the last 10 to 15 years and, and more so in the last five years. Now, most of those people will be internally displaced. So some of them will go to a different part of their own country. Some of them will be regionally displaced. So they might go to the next country over or somewhere that's relatively safe. And that's the majority of asylum and international protection claims globally. Anyway, people stay very near where they started off. But some of those people will go further afield. So you'll see in the next few years that that will have an impact on people coming to Europe so you can protect protection as well, you know. So these things are in the pipeline and um, if you back up from it, and, and it's something we always kind of try and like to do around this because things like asylum and protection tend to be looked at very much in the immediate. Right now we have X amount of people that we need to house and we're not planning ahead. We're not looking two years ahead, five years ahead, ten years ahead about what's this actually going to look like in the future, you know. And if you back up and look at international migration, like I think it bears thinking about that migration right now you know, human beings are more mobile and interconnected than at any other point in human history, you know, and that's not going to recede. That's only going to increase as we go forward, especially exacerbated by things like that. But countries like Ireland, countries in Europe and countries that are receiving asylum seekers and refugees in these kind of circumstances are not thinking five years ahead or 10 years ahead or 15 years ahead. They're just thinking about the immediate thing. And that's a real problem. That feeds into things like direct provision. That feeds into thinking that's very short term to react to a situation rather than planning for it. But one reason perhaps that they're not thinking ahead is that politically, politicians who are in situ uh, no, they're, they're programmed to, be, to think short term anyway, but particularly in, in an issue like immigration, if you were to project ahead the way the situation as you lay it out, and I think it's, it's very much that that's the reality, is you're going to have an increased volume of immigration. And that in the current climate is something that an awful lot of politicians don't want to have to face up to uh, in terms of planning. 
I think there's an awful lot of fear about public reaction. I think the public reaction to saying something like that openly, if you're a politician, there's very few politicians who are willing to kind of take the stand and say, listen, this is going to be, this is the new normal. We need to prepare for this. And actually the evidence shows, and there's research as long as your arm across the world that will show that if you do migration properly and you plan for it and invest for it, migration has a net positive impact on every country in the world that it exists. It's not perfect. There's problems with it, absolutely. And it poses structural problems but I think a lot of problem, a lot of the reluctance you'll see from political parties, not only in Ireland but everywhere, to say positive things about migration or to say, you know, somewhat kind of forward-looking things like we need to plan ahead for the fact that this is a reality, um, is due to the fact that they're not sure what public attitudes are. They're kind of afraid of it, and they hear the negative probably more often than they hear the positive, and that kind of taints their view. So they they look at it and go, I'm either better off not saying anything about this, or or if anything, I'm going to say something slightly negative about it. Yeah, and I suppose on that theme, again, very topical this week, we had the scenario whereby um, one of the candidates in the forthcoming by-elections, Verona Murphy, Fine Gael candidate in Wexford, made a number of comments, um, one of which was something to the effect that uh, we have to keep an eye on asylum seekers because children as young as three could have been manipulated by ISIS and bringing that kind of mentality into the country. And uh, she also made some comments about some asylum seekers would have to be reprogrammed. Now, Miss Murphy, she has said since, she very deeply regrets these comments and what have you. But one thing that people will perhaps walk away from that wondering is, is she saying these things because she senses, as some other politicians have suggested, that it resonates with perhaps a small but a growing section of the population, which is that, I don't know, in general, that anti-immigrant thing, that fear thing, is that creeping into sections of society here as it quite obviously has done in Western Europe and even the Western world and other countries? I think there's absolutely a risk of that happening. Now, if you look at, like, there's been recent polling over the last couple of years in Ireland around immigration. So there was a big piece of work done by the Social Change Initiative up in Northern Ireland. They did it in a couple of European countries and they focused on the Republic of Ireland. There's also the EU Barometer, which is an EU-wide survey of public attitudes towards migration. Attitudes in Ireland are overwhelmingly positive. Now, some of that is completely positive. Some of it is a bit ambiguous, but leaning towards positive. But it's about 25% of the population here that are more negative towards migration. So it's a smaller percentage. About than you 25% would... are, are more negative than positive towards migration. Yeah, that that's the kind of general, the, the mean maybe from, from the two of those surveys in particular. Um, but there's a middle group. There's a middle group that some of them lean more positive and some of them lean more negative as well. So there's, so there's a, a group in the middle whose views can be very influenced by what they hear and what they see and the type of information that they get. They're just not sure about migration. They don't know what the story is. Um, and in that kind of circumstance, what you've seen in other countries is there's broader issues at play structurally, like recessions, like the fact that there's been lack of investment, like the fact that, you know, in our, in our own country, we've gone through a recession over the last 10 years that hasn't entirely gone away yet, at least not socially. Economically, maybe we're recovering, but we're still in a social recession to a large extent. Um, and that's been capitalised upon by politicians in other countries and most recently in Ireland, we've seen negative comments like that. And you can guess, you can ascertain maybe that they're trying to tap into what they see as a, maybe a minority voice, but it might be a minority voice that's enough to get them elected um, to play upon these fears and to play upon this disinformation and to target that middle group and say, well, if you're leaning in a particular direction, lean negative because, you know, maybe we can invoke a bit of fear around this and get everybody terrified. And look at the UK. 
they tried to create a hostile environment in the UK for migrants and it spilled into politics and, and politics in the UK are in a complete shambles at the moment. And that that has been brewing over 10 years. So, so our message in Ireland would be tread cautiously when it comes to migration. We're not saying don't talk about it, but don't spread disinformation. Don't spread, you know, anti-migrant sentiment. Don't target particular nationalities and target them to, and tie them to crime when there's no evidence of that, you know? Yeah, and one thing you, you mentioned about circumstance and what I think, I, I think I never figured out, and there may be various theories on it, we went through the deepest recession, I think, in 40, 50 years here following the economic collapse in mm. 2008 and everything that flowed from it, etc. We all know that. Yes, to be fair, there was certainly not on any major scale a rise in any in, in anti-immigrant sentiment as a result, as you have seen in other places as a result of globalisation, the north of England, the Rust Belt states, etc. Mm. We didn't have any of that. Now, somebody suggested to me that some reason for that is that a lot of people, immigrants who were here, would have gone home during the recession. I don't know, is that the case or not? Or is it that basically we were that bit more tolerant and there wasn't this instinct to turn and blame the other for uh, the recession. Well, one of the things that's always been said in Ireland, we've always said it without really having the data to back it up, but now we have the data to back it up, is that public opinions in Ireland that are positive around migration are informed by the fact that we're a country of emigration, traditionally, you know. So that's always kind of been asked of us, and we'll say, well, yeah, that's probably the case. But actually, one of those pieces of research, the, the, the public attitudes did hone in on that and said... Is this the case? Do you think that you're more receptive towards migrants because we're a country has emigrated massively? And so it's been proven by, by polling that that is the case. So that, that definitely informs it to a large extent. Um, but I think, I think overall, you know, one of the things about the recession over the last 10 years is that it's it's going to kick back somewhere. You know, it's, there's going to be a kickback somewhere and it's going to happen in some way. Now, Politically, we've seen that where the larger parties have lost a lot of their overall support. It's impossible to get a, ma a majority government at the moment, a lot of rise of independence. So a bit of kickback towards the main political parties in that regard. But I think at the stage now where we are, where there are in some cases public protests around direct provision centres being opened in small towns around the country, um, the, the attitudes that are informing them are very complicated. So some of it is a kickback from that lack of investment, rural isolation, rural lack of planning and investment and housing and education and all these things. Some of it is that, a small town going, well, hold on a second, can we actually do this? You know, this has been dropped on us to a certain extent. We weren't told this was happening. Some of it is that. Some of it is the kind of traditional nimbyism of, yeah, well, asylum seekers have to be somewhere, but it's better off they're not in this town because we don't have the resources to do it. And then some of it at the upper end is informed by racial attitudes. And there are a minority within that group then that are using this as a, a lightning rod to target um, anti-migrant sentiment towards a particular thing. And they're doing that with a bit of success in the last 12 months or so. That's what I'm wondering about. No, they've been called, and I think it's, it's a misnomer in the case of these people, the alt-right. I think they're based, I think that's a, a, a particular uh, section in the US that uh, has different characteristics, some different characteristics, but one way or the other, you ha there's no question, I've seen them online myself, you have that small group that are virulently anti-immigrant, they're racist, and they want to project the image that we're all, they want to feed into all those fears about mm -hmm. immigrants. We saw in some of those towns that you mentioned about direct provision, a presence there from these people. But do you think they're having an impact on sentiment there, or is that exaggerated? I think we have to consider where we're coming from. The, the, the baseline we're coming from is not having had that at all. So to, to us in Ireland, this is a new thing to a certain extent. So even a small amount of it can be amplified, I think, because I suppose 
there's always been a risk that this would happen and now it seems to be happening and to the extent to which it's happening is very hard to determine. You know, it's hard to measure if they're hugely, massively organised and hugely, massively getting support or if it's a very small targeted number of individuals who are getting a little bit of traction here and there, you know. But I think because we're coming from an instance where we haven't had that at all in Ireland, it it, it there's a risk that it can be blown out of proportion and, and kind of go, oh, the, the rise of the far right in Ireland is very much a thing now and that we're going to see it infect our politics when it comes to the general election next year. And I, we'd be worried that we can, you know, kind of talk ourselves into it to a certain extent. So we kind of would, you know, obviously appeal for calm and say, listen, let's look at this rationally. Let's look at things in perspective, but also let's inform the public and let's work with the public. Let's lay the groundwork so that these guys can't come in and spread this information. They can't come in and say, oh, there's been a rise in crime in that town because there was a direct provision centre there, when there's no evidence of that at all. There might have been one instance where that was massively, again, blown out of proportion that has led to this kind of sentiment. But once the horse has bolted on stuff like that, it's very hard to get it back. Um, so so I think we need to, to, to really, it's, it gets back to that argument about laying the groundwork, that we need to go over the next five to ten years, what do we need to be doing? And one of the things we need to be doing is challenging disinformation that the public are receiving about migration and working with communities on a face-to-face basis going, are there people here that will take a stand and show a bit of leadership at a local level and actually go, you know what, we'll welcome these people. We can do this. This isn't completely out of the realm of possibility. It's not a huge amount of people that Ireland's dealing with, you know. And, and in that context too, the best as, as best as I can determine, the towns, particularly around rural Ireland, where there are direct provision centres, the experience has been positive in vast majority of cases. I think... Exclusively, I, I I can't think of any instance where there's been protests, uh, you know, and the government has said this and they're right in saying it. Once a centre opens and people get used to the fact that actually that centre is populated by human beings and they have some opportunity to interact with them. And that's a big thing about direct provision is very limited inter- possibilities for local communities and people in direct provision centres to interact with each other and get to know each other and go, actually... Okay, that's a human being. That's a person with a family who just want their kid is in primary school with my kid. You know, what's the difference between my person and that person apart from immigration status? Um, once that happens, generally, and I think almost exclusively, the reaction has been positive. Um, but the model in itself of direct provision, as I say, it doesn't foster that enough. Yeah, I'll, just, I'll come to direct provision. I mean, one other thing just to touch on before that is yeah. politically, again, just going back to the politicians that have made comments and what have you, up until now, there has been no foothold among the electorate for anybody with those views. You can go back to 2001 when everything was so new, sorry, early 2000s, when everything was so new and you had this crowd uh, immigration platform on mm. you, a woman from West Cork, and they made zero impact. And, and that was a time because there, there was a lot of those unspoken fears because this was totally new to the country. Mm. Since then, no, and including then, there never has been an impact electorally from anybody expressing that kind of anti-immigrant sentiment. Do you think that may change? The local elections this year were telling, the local and European elections were telling to a certain extent in that there were probably more candidates coming from that type of position than ever before but none of them got elected, you know. Um, some of them got tiny, tiny proportions of local votes, a couple of hundred votes, one or two of them may have got over a thousand votes in a couple of circumstances, uh, which which wasn't enough to get them elected. So their visibility is quite high, but it hasn't, as of late anyway, at least not in the local and the European elections, translated into electoral success, you know. Although we saw in the presidential elections that Peter Casey got, what, 25% of the vote, that's worrying in and of itself, seeing as most of his gambit tended to run on targeting my Minorities, especially travellers, you know. So, so there is a risk of it. 
Um, and there is a risk, as I say, that opportunistic politicians might decide that this is a, a bang, a drum they want to bang in the general elections because they think they might get something out of it. But I think actually with the majority public sentiment in Ireland being wary of this kind of thing and actually can see through it quite transparently because we've seen what it's done to other uh, countries around us, I don't think they will have massive electoral success. But obviously... That's not something you can just leave alone and hope that that's the case, you know? Yeah, and I suppose on that theme, it would appear certainly that all the main parties, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, uh, Sinn Féin, Labour, um, Social Democrats, the Greens, whoever we have, all of them would appear to be making a stand on the basis of they, they, they'll, they will not tolerate any intolerance, if you want to put it that way. Yeah. But what you could have, particularly in a country where you have a relatively large proportion of independence, you could have a divide between the positions taken by parties and perhaps those taken by some independents. And if it goes well for those independents, that well, could be that a worrying feature then in terms of how, what the party stands, whether they'd retain that um, <coughs> stance against intolerance, you know? Yeah, I, I, that, and that is the threat. You know, the independents obviously are much less constrained in what they can say and they can say all kinds of things and they don't have a party structure around them wrapping them on the knuckles or pulling them back or maybe not even selecting them in the first place if they're very obviously and virulently kind of using this kind of rhetoric. Um, and the parties, as you say, have reacted well to a large extent in terms of the general narrative around migration over the last while and most recently. But there's a risk, of, and I think you're, you're beginning to see it a little bit as well, where they're trying to walk this balance line between on the one hand we're really tough on migrants and really tough on immigrants and we're going to root out those who are you know defrauding the system but also migration is brilliant and positive and we really need it in Ireland and it's a fabulous thing um and there's a risk in trying to walk that line. You know, obviously, like for a government to say we need an immigration system that needs to make sense and needs to, to if we're assessing people's claims for international protection, for example, that we can determine whether or not it's a valid claim or not. That's totally valid. There's nothing wrong with saying that. However, if you then stray into the territory of saying and certain nationalities we view as inherently problematic, that's really difficult. That's getting into the territory where you're singling out people, singling out particular nationalities. And that's the type of thing that feeds into the far right rhetoric. And that's the type of thing that feeds into anti-migrant sentiment. So it's a careful line they need to walk and the fear is that they try and walk that line and err on the side of assuring the public that we're so tough on migrants that it it ends up feeding into anti-migrant sentiment. It ends up more often than not them saying negative things than positive things. So Yeah, but I suppose, Brian, in in that vein, uh, a couple of weeks ago there, Leo Varadkar, the Taoiseach, made a comment about uh, and again, this is at the height when there was issues of direct provision, asylum seekers, the protests, etc. He made the comment that, and there has been a bit of a spike in the last couple of years, that um, a huge number responsible for that spike came from, I think it was Albania and Georgia, mm. both of which are certainly officially deemed safe countries and therefore not ones might, one might expect anybody to be fleeing any form of persecution from. Now, what did you feel about him making those comments? I thought I thought it was in the realm of what I was just describing, essentially. On the one hand, trying to reassure the public that they're really tough on migration and they're really rooting out, you know, things that they want to try and target. And on the other hand, then saying, but migration is really positive and we want to, we want to, to you know, it is a part of the fabric of Irish life. And I think in that particular instance, the comments were really unhelpful from the Taoiseach because he, he went on to single out particular nationalities and describe them as being inherently problematic and essentially saying that anyone from those countries doesn't have a valid claim for asylum here in Ireland. And that's not the case. He didn't exactly say that, to be fair to him. I, mm. I, I, I got, he certainly would have inferred yeah, that the I likelihood the of somebody from yeah. there fleeing something was far, far less than perhaps countries that there was conflict, there was all the 
the other various issues. And th- there's another thing that could be put forward in relation to that. If, for instance, you have people from so-called safe countries filling up the asylum seeker um, population, mm. is there a possibility that then that in the minds of some people and that middle ground you were re- referring to previously, that it could in their minds uh, discredit the validity of asylum seekers if you have, and I, I don't like the term, but that term they use in economic migrants, we're all economic migrants mm. from this country at one stage, but if you have people very understandably fleeing poverty but not really being in with a chance of getting asylum status, uh, filling out the system, is there a possibility then that, that that could affect public confidence in the system? I think, well, maybe just to finish off the point about kind of what Lee, uh, the Taoiseach was saying, um, in in the recent comments as well. I think it's worth bearing in mind as well, though, that nationals of those countries, Georgia and Albania, have received protection status right. in Ireland and some of them have gotten it on appeal yeah. and, and it does happen, you know, yeah. that, that there's genuine cases coming from that. And I think it's really important that we keep that in mind. And as you say, he didn't directly say it, but it was an inference that this was kind of irregular or illegal migration is the term he used in kind of the same soundbite. Um, and that... Again, I suppose it, it, it does risk feeding into the negativity around asylum seekers as well from that instance. But as you say then, what, what tends to happen, and, and again, maybe backing up a little bit and looking at migration as, as a kind of a global phenomenon, um, what tends to happen is very restrictive legal pathways for people to migrate globally. So very restrictive legal pathways for people to migrate to Europe as a whole, to member states and to Ireland in particular. So if you're from outside the EU, your options pretty much are you can be an international student, you can come and join a family member who's already here, be they an Irish citizen or otherwise. You can come on a work permit, which are really restricted, high skills, highly paid categories. And that's pretty much it. Or you can make an asylum claim in Ireland, you know. Um Now, in those kind of areas with very restrictive legal pathways for people to migrate, the the options that are available to people become very limited. So you get the type of instance that we just saw yesterday with 16 people in the back of a truck coming in through Rosslare because, you know, we spent time in Calais in northern France in in 2016. We met a lot of the people that are there, most of which were going trying to go to the UK, some of which had contacts with Ireland, but most of which were going to the UK. And a lot of them were saying, I have family in the UK. I applied to join my wife and child in the UK and I was refused permission to do so. So I have no other option now but to go this route. So when you have very limited or um, exclusionary routes of migration, um, it, it feeds into the hands of the likes of people smugglers, people traffickers, and it feeds into irregular migration and does, uh, in many instances, give people very few choices, but maybe to make an asylum application where they mightn't have the grounds to do it. And that's really problematic. Things like the Global Compact for Migration that Ireland has signed up to are an, an attempt at a global level to try and address that kind of stuff by saying we need to increase safe and regular migration and we need to invest in integration of people in, in home countries to try and move countries from this really narrow, restrictive view to go towards actually legal migration makes more sense because people are going to travel anyway. They're going to try and do it anyway. Yeah, and I suppose in that vein, I've personal experience going back more than 30 years, it was a different ball game when the Irish, all you did was you flew to the United States on a tourist visa, you went past the airport and you disappeared. That option for people fleeing poverty now from countries is simply not available because everything has tightened up so strictly. But you talked there, Brian, about legal migration. I mean, are you suggesting in that that we should have or we should allow in some capacity a lot more migration into the likes of this country? I think there's there's a tendency for people to go 
does that equal open borders? And that's not at all what we're suggesting, you know, and we get, we get that thrown at us as an organization mm. every now and you want open borders and we're, we're not saying that. We're talking about legal paths for migration that are actually planned out and invested in. And, and when I say planned out, I mean targeted towards areas in the economy, for example, that there are still shortages in people. So we're at more than full employment here in Ireland or as close to full employment as we get in Ireland. There are still sectors in Ireland that are crying out for people that don't fit within the work permit and green card sector. So if you look at agriculture, that doesn't fit within work permits and green cards anymore. But there's still a huge need for people in that area. Um, but the work permits and green cards only go towards like IT companies and pharmaceutical companies. And, you know, you have to have a master's degree and upwards and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it's not... It's not. It's it's taking a kind of a long term plan, nuanced view of what migration is, and having it be flexible, and being able to make the political decisions to say, okay, you know what, we're going to adapt our work permit scheme towards areas we didn't look at in the last ten years, and give people from countries that maybe have um, a tendency, or you know, that have a lot of people emigrating, that we can target it towards that and say, okay, we'll take you in. Here's the sectors that are available for you to work in, but we're also going to invest in your integration. So we're not just going to drop you off in the middle of nowhere. We're going to invest in English language courses. We're going to invest in the structures around you to make sure you integrate quickly, and that Ireland sees essentially a return from that person as quickly as possible as well. So they're integrated, they're legally here, they're able to work. Um, so. It's it's taken that kind of calm, reasoned, thought through version of migration that needs to be done, and most countries aren't doing that. Most countries are doing can it very do reactively. It, we, if, for example, we were to go down that route, would it have to be in conjunction with the rest of the EU, or is there possibilities for for us to do it unilaterally? There's there's a lot of benefit towards doing it collaboratively with other EU countries like a lot of EU mechanisms around migration we've tended to opt out of as a country because Ireland and the UK have seen ourselves we've seen ourselves as the islands off the west coast and we've got the common travel area and we've opted out of things like long term residency provisions and all these kind of things that other countries have um, signed into and we would say there's a lot of benefit to signing into those things because you're doing it collaboratively and you're doing it in a view towards proportionally sharing out almost kind of the the impact of migration in countries but countries are still within that able to do their own things responding to their own economies and countries and social needs as well you know right. so it's a balance between the two you know okay direct provision mm. what's the council's position on it it's it's a complicated one um it's a complicated area i suppose one of the things about direct provision that's interesting and interesting maybe is the wrong word to use is that routinely over the last 20 years of it, its existence, human rights groups, ourselves included, have called again and again and again for the moving beyond from direct provision. It was a short-term measure introduced in the early 2000s to deal with what at the time was a peak far beyond what we have now in terms of asylum applicants um, that became a long-term policy. And it's seen by the government as the only show in town. Direct provision is the only way we can do this. And you have organisations that are not just migration organisations, but children's rights organisations. The independent rapporteur, Jeffrey Shannon, has said direct provision needs to be done away with, needs to be moved on from. Now, we say those comments in the context of being aware of the fact that in Ireland at the moment we're dealing with a massive housing crisis. Yeah. So what shuts down the conversation around changing direct provision to a different model is the housing crisis. And the government will say the only way we can go is backwards. We only can go back to tents and we can go back to putting people in tents and sleeping bags. We don't want to do that. Direct provision is therefore the only show in town. And there's been a lot of commentary about it's not actually the only show in town. There's there's options that we can, again, build in over the next five to ten years and invest towards that change direct provision incrementally. It's not going to change tomorrow. It's not going to be abolished tomorrow. But if you think about over the next three to five years, if the government could could have a, 
a change in perspective that ta- that looks at those who are particularly, maybe initially, most vulnerable with indirect provision. So if you look at families with kids, kids shouldn't be growing up in direct provision at the end of the day. There is no way that a child should be in direct provision. And everybody has said that and banged that drum so many times, including, as I say, the highest level of experts like Jeffrey Shannon. Um, those that are victims of trafficking with indirect provision. So one thing that many people don't know is people that are victims of human trafficking are put in direct provision centres as well. And we would work with a lot of victims of trafficking through our services and it's absolutely um, appalling that victims of trafficking are put in direct provision. They shouldn't be there. And that's been called out, the government has been called out on that in numerous different ways by international bodies as well. Those that are victims of torture, those that are LGBT and minority, those with disability, you know, they should not be in, it's not a one-size-fits-all. You cannot use direct provision to just have a one-size-fits-all situation. So it needs to be moved beyond, but also we need to look at processing time. So people are there, and there are still, you know, over 100 people in direct provision right now that are there seven years and longer. There's still, there are people that are there four years, but five the, years, the six actual, years. As I understand it, the actual length of time now is down to, is it about 13 or 14 months? For the first interview, it's 15 for, months. For the so first you, interview, so, you so then actually, you go to the appeal process. So then you come in, you come in and you make an application and then 15 months later is the general time when you get your first interview to have your claim heard. So there's 15 months in between where you're essentially not doing anything. You might be meeting a legal person to get your, to get your, um, to get the, the case together essentially to present to the state. But um, it's 15 months and then it starts and then it can be how long is a piece of string after that. But some of them then, there's about a thousand people now that are four years and longer in direct provision um, out of the seven and a half thousand people that are in both direct provision and emergency accommodation at the moment. So the processing time tends team, to be on the longer end. that team though, Brian, surely emergency accommodation, which is, I think it's over a thousand as you said, yeah, uh, asylum seekers now yeah. and you also, in terms of homeless people, you've up to 10,000 people in that type of accommodation. Surely that's worse than direct provision. It is, it is and and I think the government would acknowledge that Minister Stanton has said it a number of times um, the Taoiseach has said it, they don't want to be using emergency accommodation but again, looking at direct provision as the only show in town, they've boxed themselves in to this approach whereby they may have been much more successful five years ago in getting private contractors willing to open direct provision centres. That's changed in the last while. The economy's picked back up, tourism has picked back up, hotels are now profitable again. They're not, you know, during the recession they weren't profitable. So it was okay for somebody to go, actually, I'll turn this place into a direct and provision the, centre. There's there suggestions of moving it to, to, to uh, state-owned lands run by the state as opposed to private contractors. Would you view that as a positive? Well, one of the things in that, at least what that would do, that's still within the model of direct provision, but at least what that would do is put it on a more steady footing. So you're not using emergency accommodation for a start, which is completely inappropriate. You can't build any structures around people when they're staying in a hotel or a B&B somewhere. Um, And it is, you know, the the, the reports that are coming out of the type of standards that people are living in, in those those kind of situations, are worse than what's in direct provision, you know. Um, So at least it gives a steadier footing whereby they can plan around the people that are in the centre, they can build services in, they can have the likes of ourselves, be uh, attachments to that to provide legal services to the victims of trafficking that are, you can plan forward with that kind of an approach. That's one suggestion that they have, but it, it, to a certain extent that's kind of doubling down on the model of direct provision that's saying we're, again... So what we're, is the alternative? I mean, as, as you said, it should be prioritised mm. uh, prioritise certain groups, absolutely. But is the alternative putting people into housing? That's what the government tend to say is the kind of knee-jerk reaction almost to people saying there should be alternatives to direct provision. Now, um, it's not that everybody is suggesting everybody get a house as soon as they come into the country. That's not what civil society are suggesting. That's not what everybody is suggesting. First of all, there is a need for 
when, when, it, when it, somebody comes into the country and makes an, an application for protection, there would have to be some kind of reception condition. So there'd have to be some kind of centre type approach that, you know... As they have in most Western countries. Yeah. yeah, there has to be some way of doing that, at least initially. But at, at, at a certain point... We need, as I say, we need to work on processing time so somebody's not there four and five years. In other European countries, you can have an asylum application processed in six months. If somebody was in a, an initial reception condition for six months, that wouldn't be the worst scenario in the world in the short term, if it was a short term, you know. But groups like the Irish Refugee Council and others have done great work kind of mapping out what the future alternatives would be and there's a number of factors to that. One is the fact that the model at the moment is a for-profit model. So it's a for-profit model of independent contractors tendering to run these centres and they are not coming at it from a human rights point of view. They're not coming at it from a knowledgeable point of view even. They don't even know necessarily the background of who they're receiving and what they need. Um, There are other housing agencies and bodies out there that should be incentivized to, to run the centres. housing bodies like, yeah. The type of things like the, there's, there's been conversations with the Peter McVerry Trust, with the Paul Ireland and others to say, are ye interested in this area? And and generally the, the reaction from housing bodies like that has been, yes, if it's, in, if it's structured in a way that means we can actually do it. If we can get into that, whereby um, there's longer term contracts, whereby there's a, an ability for us to, to renovate premises we might already have so that they're suitable um, so that it's, it's uh, um, it, it allows for the kind of wraparound services that, that people seeking protection need in those circumstances. And that's kind of a middle ground. And then obviously those housing bodies could, could in the long term then transition, particularly families, particularly those in, in high needs, into own door accommodation ultimately, you know, so a, a transition period. So like the answer to direct provision is not one answer. It's a couple of different answers. And there's one other thing that's worth mentioning as well is, is community sponsorship. So this new model in Ireland of community sponsorship that's been done in other countries, which is a essentially groups of members of the public coming together to say, we as a community in this town are going to be able to provide the resources, provide the housing and provide the support structure around receiving a refugee family coming from the Lebanon, a Syrian family, whatever it may be. And they do that model at a local level. Um, and that's been piloted in Ireland. It was just launched last week on, on a larger it's scale. For a while, it's the other towns, yeah. And it's, you know, over the last 30 years in Canada, they've resettled 300,000 refugees through community sponsorship. Now it's a totally different scale and a totally different size country and a totally different level of, of ability to do that. But it's indicative of the type of things that can harness positive public opinion towards receiving refugees and asylum seekers that takes the pressure off direct provision and puts people in the middle of a community where they can be better integrated. Finally, Brian, are you optimistic or pessimistic in terms of the, 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 the future trends that are there in immigration and the sentiment that appears to be out there? Hopefully that sentiment is transient, but we'll have to wait and see. Do you see reasons to uh, be cheerful about things or I, pessimistic? I describe myself as an, an unrepentant optimist. Um, no matter, you know, like I, I, I have an awful lot of faith in the ability of people if they get an opportunity to humanize the process, to meet people and figure out that the person sitting opposite them is a human being the same as themselves and has the same needs and hopes and desires as they do. I have huge faith in that ability in people once they're able to humanize the process to realize that this is something that can be managed and this is something that can be planned for. And actually, it's good for us. Actually, it's good for the country and it's good for an, a, a society and good for an economy. I think what we have to allow for is that there is always going to be naysayers. There's always going to be negative voices and they will get some traction. And, and it's a matter of dealing with over the next five to ten years how that is managed and how we manage the conversation around migration, that it's not one based on disinformation, that it's not one based on fear, that it's not one based on knee-jerk populism. It's one based on facts and on humanity and on human rights. 
Brian Killoran, uh, Chief Executive of the Immigrant Council of Ireland, thank you very much for joining us today. That's it, folks. Uh, I'd just like to thank Declan Conlon, producer, and JJ Vernon, the engineer here. Uh, you can contact me with any thoughts or opinions on mick.clifford at examiner.ie or on the Twitter machine at, at mickcliff. See you soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.